Good morning to everybody and thank you for joining us today. I'm Nicholas Bornodius, President of Capital Inc. And I would like to welcome you all to Capital Inc. Shipping's um, webinar series. Uh, I am delighted today to have uh, to host a webinar that will address one of the hottest and the most critical topics of the industry. Uh, we are going to talk about <clears throat> matters pertaining to seafarers who are the backbone of the industry. And we are going to be discussing not only what is happening right now uh, during the COVID-19 period, but also well beyond. Uh, we will talk about issues pertaining to seafarers and to the industry uh, in general. The industry uh, depends, relies on the continued supply of uh, well-trained seafarers who uh, choose uh, a maritime career and our three distinguished uh, panelists are going to address all these topics. Uh, I'm particularly proud, frankly, to have with us today the three, main, the three key stakeholders uh, who are involved in the process of uh, mandating what is happening re regarding seafarers. So uh, we have with us uh, Guy Platten, Guy Platten actually, who is the Secretary General of the International Chamber of Shipping, Stephen Cotton, the General Secretary at the International Transport Workers Federation, the ITF, and Captain Belal Ahmed, Chairman at the International Maritime Employers Council and Managing Director at the Western Shipping Company in Singapore. And he is also Chairman of the Joint Negotiating Committee that negotiates on behalf of employers with the ITF. I will very briefly paint the, the, the background of their organization so you can all get the picture of how they fit together and how they work together uh, on, on matters pertaining to seafarers. So I will start with the uh, International Chamber of Shipping. Uh, established in 1921, ICS is the principal international trade association for ship owners and operators. Its membership, comprises the world's national ship owners associations and represents about 80% of the global merchant fleet. ICS represents also ship owners at the various intergovernmental bodies that regulate shipping, including the UN agencies of the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, and the ILO, the International Labor Organization. And ICS is overriding concern is the maintenance of the global regulatory framework for international shipping. If we go now to ITF, ITF has been helping seafarers since 1896, and today represents the interests of seafarers worldwide, uh, of whom over 600,000 are members of ITF-affiliated unions. ITF is working to improve conditions for seafarers of all nationalities, and to ensure adequate regulation of the shipping industry to protect the interests and rights of workers. It helps crews regardless of their nationality or the flag of the ship. Furthermore, it represents transport workers' interests in the various international bodies, um, affecting decisions that have to do with jobs, employment conditions, or safety, such as the IMO, the ILO, and, and so on. And now if we go to Captain uh, Belal Ahmed, the International Maritime Employers Council, IMEC, is the only international employers organization dedicated to maritime industrial relations. Established over 50 years ago, it represents over 250 shipping companies located all over the world. And among its activities, uh, IMEC, uh, negotiates with ITF uh, on benefits which apply to ITF members and members of the joint negotiating uh, group, which also includes Japanese and Korean uh, ship owners. So here we have exactly the three main uh, stakeholders, regulators, industry association, the unions, and the employers. So I will, uh, without any further delay, I will uh, hand it over to the uh, Panelists, I'd like to thank you and them for joining us today. Uh, just a couple of housekeeping uh, remarks. Uh, you are welcome to uh, submit questions. You can use the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. 
there will be a discussion among the panelists and then uh, they will address your questions. And uh, you can always come back later on at capitallinkwebinars.com to access the, uh, the file as an audio or video archive. Uh, and uh, I will spare you for the usual disclaimer that uh, this is uh, only for informational and educational purposes. Um, so, and that uh, this, of course, webinar, as always, uh, portrays the views of the panelists. So thank you to everybody for joining us. And Stephen, I will turn it over to you to kick off our discussion. Thanks, Nicholas. Can I just say uh, thanks for the opportunity to share yeah. a, an hour with the team to discuss uh, what's happening with COVID-19 and the impact on seafarers. Perhaps it's also a critical time to look at what the future of the industry looks like. Such things as sustainable transport, the policy on emissions, what that means for the deck and engine seafarers, what it means for their education. I think it's also time, having seen the disruption to, to the world at large by COVID, to look at what's going to happen to the global supply chains and what should um, the industry be doing, and again, I will stress that, you know, this is an amazing industry, together to look for recruited recruitment, uh, reassuring seafarers that uh, this is a profession and industry they want to be part of. So for us in the ITF, it's a privilege. I'm going to go to Guy first and then Balao, and then we'll have a, hopefully a very informal but informative session. Guy? Thanks so very much indeed, Steve. So, you know, I think what we've seen over the last three months is a, a huge amount of cooperation between employers, between the social partners like ITF and with ICS as well, um, to try and tackle this crisis which we're going through. I think it, we can't move on to the future until we need to look at today and the, uh, the 200,000 seafarers who are currently trapped on board ships waiting to be relieved and the 200,000 waiting to relieve them. Um, this is uh, create a real lockdown which really puts the, the global supply chain under threat unless we resolve it. Because, you know, we recognise they've gone the extra mile and uh, they've been keeping, working us to keep us all supplied and we owe it to them. And so, you know, it's been a real focus of, of all our efforts and these unprecedented levels of cooperation we've seen to try and resolve this issue, to try and persuade governments that they must step up to the plate and facilitate crew changes and to allow crew to, to, to go from their home to the ships and vice versa. And we know of so many seafarers who missed out on weddings and missed out on the births of their children. And they've probably missed out on funerals of close relatives and loved ones as well. And there's a real mental and physical toll on them and we really must work. But I think what I'd like to think is beyond that, is that once we get through these problems, and I'm sure together we will do, is how we can continue that cooperation. Because, you know, putting this COVID-19 just to one side for a second, our industry is going to go through fundamental change over the next decade. I mean, we, we talk about the, the, the emissions reductions, the greenhouse gas, which means that uh, we're going to be looking at the introduction of zero carbon fuel ships, probably in the 2030s. We're looking at all the autonomous and digitalization that, that's going on at the moment as we speak. And yet at the heart of this all, the single most important factor will continue to be the seafarer. So there's loads of challenges as we move out of this. And, and there is, must be a fear, how can we continue to retain and attract the very best young people to come into our industry to man what are highly sophisticated um, ships and units going forward. So it, it'll be a good opportunity maybe to reflect on this COVID now and what we can do more of, but also to use this debate to, to focus on the future as well. So thank you, Steve. Belal, would you like to come in? Yeah. Hi, Steve. Thanks. And thanks, Nicholas, for the introduction. Uh, and uh, uh, Guy, thanks you. thank you as well. Uh, I just like to echo what Guy was saying, basically, that uh, uh, this extraordinary crisis has brought all of us together. I have, at least my experience in the industry for more than 40 years, I've never seen uh, all the stakeholders coming together. Uh, and, and this is really uh, unprecedented. And, and just echoing what Guy was saying, this probably uh, one day uh, soon, we hope, will go away. But this, this bringing us together event will help us to shape the industry for future. I think today probably, hopefully during this uh, webinar, we can touch some of those areas where we can work together. Uh, apart from just 
talking about coming together, which is a good thing, but we, the reason we are coming together is the seafarers. And again, talking about humanitarian crisis that is now turning into not just that, we are talking about a real impact on global supply chain. We are talking about real impact uh, on, on shipping itself. Uh, a safety environment, when, when there is a question of uh, shipping safety, we always talk about not just human life, but uh, effect on environment. So uh, we are all here together, uh, but I have to have to bring up something that probably will will we'll feature later on, is when we say we are all together, uh, I personally believe we still probably do not have uh, uh, some who should be with us uh, together. Uh, I do believe that the end users uh, of uh, any voyage, which are the charters, some of us are still not on board to assist the crew change. And obviously uh, our biggest frustration still lies with a lot of national governments who are still not opening up. I believe later we will be talking about how this, uh, this can be addressed. And uh, a part of the webinar agenda is about post COVID uh, situation in shipping. And obviously that is uh, looking at future uh, automation, changes of ship design. Uh, in fact, uh, we, we, we may not be carrying some cargo 10, 20 years from today and what the shipping is going to become. And COVID-19 has taught a lot of us about how the automation or the modern uh, communication actually assists in being more productive. I'm quite sure some of this will not only be affected ashore, but also will be on board. So without uh, much further ado, uh, Steve, maybe we can go into the real discussion. Okay, thanks, Bilal. Uh, um, so I, I just think um, tackling it from the COVID dimension, the ITF has been working tirelessly on, on seafarers' rights, but I think perhaps our industry is under uh, represented in policymakers and just underappreciated is perhaps the word I'm really looking for. And I think um, all of us have been doing our different tasks for some time and we've built uh, a very strong capacity to collaborate. Um, we have different audiences, we have different memberships, we have different, sometimes different objectives, but with shipping, there is a, there is a sense of unity. Now, I think our biggest frustration, and again, I've been meeting Bilal and Guy for seems for many weeks on a weekly basis talking about what do we need to do next and that conversation that Bilal identified about government so for whatever reason we find ourselves in 2020 dependent on all parts of the globe to make shipping successful but all parts of the globe are only serviced by effective aviation functioning another part of ITF's job um, and they're in serious trouble but we haven't been able to get to the big decision makers and, you know, we've, we've collaborated on getting the message out um, and we've attacked it from the supply chain, primarily because we want the world to know that it's the seafarers, that when countries were locked down, it was the seafarers and the ship owners, to be very fair, who made sure the ships kept running day and night, made sure that medical, medical pharmacy drugs were delivered, medical equipment, personal protection equipment, even, you know, I'm based in the UK, um, the supermarkets seem to have been the only thing functioning effectively in the UK um, over the last few months, but that is on the basis that seafarers deliver the, deliver the food. So I think for me, the big frustration going forward, we want to comply with issues like uh, zero emissions by 2050, is we need the world to appreciate what the shipping industry does for them. Um, whether you're sitting at the breakfast table or whether you're enjoying uh, good, good quality food or wine, it's ultimately been delivered uh, by, by, by ships and seafarers. So that's the first position. We need more governments to pay attention and we're a bit of a critical moment. I think we all agree in the next two months, we must see a mass movement of these seafarers. And that means the labor supply countries and uh, you know, India and the Philippines, I'm going to name as two that are critical to our success, need to help us get moving. But there's also this issue of the bigger picture because I think We've recognised, certainly in the ITF, the degree of anxiety by seafarers 
who, you know, it's a tough job. Um, many of the audience will be former seafarers, and I'm pretty sure the majority of you make, make your living from the industry. Now, the reality is we're not recognised and we're not heard, and we've had to work tirelessly from all of our different angles, um, us talking about the fatigue of seafarers, their desire to get off, the pressures on family, you know, I think perhaps the most um, heart-rendering messages we get, uh, Balau touched upon it, is from seafarers whose family are ill or they've missed the birth of their children. And, you know, we always talk about technology and this, this webinar wouldn't be possible without it, but technology brings the family life into the cabin, onto the ship. Now, normally, you know, when you join a vessel and more or less, you know, when you get off a vessel, how do you explain to your young children or your parents or your wife or partner um, how, how you're going to, when you're going to be home? So there's been a lot of intensity. Um, and I think the big issues that we now have are to look at what, what does climate change mean for us? Um, we're going to hear, I believe, and I sit in a lot of um, different panels from all the different transport modes, that digitalization is going to help us with social distancing, the future of the... You know, I don't really want to talk about automated ships today because I'm not sure that is a realistic proposal, but the skills needed to navigate a ship, the skills needed to manage the engine room with whatever fuels that we use as, the, as different parts of the world change the laws about uh, emissions are all things we need to discuss. And I think we will have to do a job as a group. And I think the question I'll pass around the panel is, how do we make sure that our industry is recognized as the, as the backbone, as Nicholas put it, of the global economy. Because now more than ever, the global economy needs to kickstart and come forward. But shipping can't be left hanging uh, for some governments to take some responsibility. So I think my first challenge back across <laughs> the, the internet is uh, how do we get our shipping industry higher visibility? And, and what do we need to do to make sure that we retain today's seafarers and attract the, the next generation of seafarers where the technological skills may be even higher. I think I'm going to go to Guy first with that. Thanks, uh, that's, uh, Steve. Yeah, I, I think we sort of known as sea blinders, really. We're, we're out of sight, out of mind, and just carry on delivering the, the, the supplies, the fuel, the, the vital things which have kept us going during the pandemic. I think we have actually managed to raise the profile of shipping, but usually it's only when there's a disaster. That, uh, that shipping gets into the headlines, but at least now maybe this is, this is a humanitarian crisis. But at least we're getting the point across that shipping lose 80% of world trade, that it's vital, and that actually shipping is an integral part of the recovery uh, that's going to be that the world is going to need. And, and so what we need to do, I think, is is hopefully build on what the, the, the steps already made over the last few weeks in terms of getting that profile up there. But we need to do far more. And part of that is that we also need to focus on solving the, the, the issue. And I don't want to talk about the future, but what are we asking for? Because I see there's a, some questions in the, in the Q&A box about that. It's, it's more and more ports need to open up for crew changes. But what we really need to do is governments to firstly recognise and designate seafarers as essential and key workers. Rightly so, we've lauded and praised all the healthcare professionals who've seen countries through uh, the worst of these crises. But seafarers have been there all the time doing that essential job. We need to make sure that um, seafarers are allowed to, to move unhindered between their home countries and their, their ships. We need travel restrictions to be lifted for them because they're essential workers. And we need some of those administrative features like visas and other things which uh, you know, need to be suspended, at least with temporary basis, to allow them to get to and from their ships. And we also need to work with the airlines, with ICAO, with the international regulators, to try and get commercial travel started. Essentially, since the middle of March, it's all put cease, and that's been half our problem, is trying to actually, as well as the administrative type things, is to actually physically get the seafarers to and from the home. So I think that's something that we are certainly lobbying very hard for. I was very pleased to hear the United Kingdom are hosting a, a summit uh, at the end of next week uh, with like-minded countries to try and look at these issues and to try and get some real political traction. But I would appeal to any governments out there who are tuning in to see, you know, what can you do to help us here now? Really classify seafarers as key and allow us to, to, to move forward. And, um, you know, there's now, we say 200,000. Every week that goes past, that number increases. 
and hence some of the terrible mental and physical toll it's, it's taking as well. So we really need as an industry to come together and, and to sort of segue into the, into the future as well is, is we need to promote shipping as a, a, as, a, as a great industry because it is one. So we can attract the talent going forward. And I fear one of the, dis, the things happening at the moment is going to put people off from actually joining our industry as a career. The fact that you're doing 15 months on board a ship, which some people are, is not very appealing to a, a somebody considering their career options going forward. So it's, you know, we've got to address that image of shipping um, as well. And then look about the focus on the future and an exciting future it is um, for all of us. Thanks, Guy. Bilal, would you like to come in? Can I throw out the first pretty challenging question from one of our captains out there, which is this, this issue of uh, flag state and uh, extensions? So it looks like it's just been announced that Panama, um, which has come under quite a lot of heavy criticism over the last couple of weeks, certainly from seafarers unions, about um, respecting the Maritime Labour Convention, which says 11 months in any 12-month period, an agreement to give a three-month extension and a further three-month extension. It looks from the note, and I haven't had a chance to verify it, that they're saying from the 22nd, uh, from the 6th of July, that uh, any extension is dependent on um, uh, uh, what we would describe as a repatriation plan. And if I want to open that up to, to the panel, just add my two pennies worth before we go there, I think we called together the flag states and we identified that it was a real challenge for them to be dynamic about this issue. Um, again, behind the scenes, um, we've had tremendous support from the team at the IMO and the team at the ILO, again, as, a, as our partners in this with uh, ICS and, and IMEC and the JNG folks. Um, we, we, I have to say I'm pleased with that. If that is a substantiated report, I'm extremely pleased that Panama have responded to the criticism. I think, just to pick up on what Guy was saying, I hope I don't take too much away from Bilal, um, you know, this puts the pressure back where it needs to be on national governments to open up their airports and we are pleading with and i would go so far the idf doesn't beg very often but we're begging airlines to be available for flights but we understand it's the government's jurisdiction to authorize commercial flights indian employers ship owners many agents managers have done a tremendous job on chartering flights but that's not a sustainable solution but Bilal, would you like to come in on that one? I think you're on mute, Bilal. Yeah, uh, Steve, before I uh, take where you left off, uh, I just wish to add some comments from the employer side. Uh, we, as I had mentioned previously, when we are talking among us, uh, the employers are in the in the front line of this crisis. Uh, we uh, recruit our seafarers, we train them, we are in touch with their family, we share their grief, and and many a times, probably before they get go to the unions, they actually come to us, and and uh, today. Uh, the shipping is complex. It requires people that are focused, that are properly trained, and uh, it's very easy to make mistakes in a, in a complex environment with a, with a very minimum number of crew nowadays on board. So a lot of pressure uh, actually comes to us. And from the beginning of the crisis, we have all tried to see how to solve the problem without making too much of a uh, noise about it. And we initially agreed that certain extensions should be given. We, we discussed with ITF and it, it was good to see that they had agreed. And we requested for another month of extension and that was agreed. And then we went for a third month of, in a way, kind of extension and still, we could not get the real players in the, in the global arena who could really untie the knot, which is basically the national governments to allow the seafarers movement as a key worker 
and obviously the airlines to run some flights. Uh, when situation reached at this stage, many shipping companies uh, and probably some local organizations tried to do their own charter flights. And we know it's a drop in the ocean. It's never going to solve the real problem. It is never going to solve the real problem. So we are very close to the seafarers. And that is why finally we have managed to exchange our views that we are all in this together and the same boat and people really need to understand. Um, I see one of the questions about Singapore and I was closely involved with Singapore working group. And when we talk to governments, and again, I do not wish to be negative about how each government works, but mostly we find the people responsible for the shipping side of any government are very sympathetic to the cause and to the crisis. But obviously this is a health crisis and the different ministries are involved uh, into allowing the Ministry of Shipping or Ministry of Transport in different countries, how they will allow this request from the ship managers and ship owners and the shipping industry as a whole, how to allow or facilitate crew to move around uh, from the ship to home and, 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 and back on board. So, so the, the, these are the issues I believe that uh, we still have not succeeded to resolve. So finally, as Guy was saying, we need to do flights and obviously we need to do visa. That is, we know the majority of the seafarers today come from Philippines and then India and many other countries where they can't move without, without doing visa. And I think ITF and ICS, and we have been working to get the uh, main uh, developed nations to at least for a temporary period to withdraw, withdraw the visa requirement. Uh, again, this is still, still a struggle, uh, but, but some countries are, are opening up. Uh, so uh, the crisis, as far as we see, or as far as we, the stakeholders, could do have done. Now it has gone to the, shall we say, the ball is on the court of the national governments to, to really get into the act and do something. And I, I, I like to commend what the British government is trying to do to, to call this global meeting on the uh, on ministerial meeting to discuss and find a way out of this. Um, yeah, Steve, uh, I think that, that's at, at the moment for me. Thanks, Bilal. Just trying to answer some of the questions about, uh, percent, not, I haven't got the percentage answers, but I can identify the nationalities. Certainly under ITF agreements, the Filipinos are, very much in first place, whether they're operating on cargo ships or cruise ships. Second place for us would be India. Then it kind of goes in various different orders depending on cargo or cruise, Ukrainian, Russian and Chinese. Um, the question about um, labor supply, which has always been a, quite a controversial one for the ITF. I think it's kind of massively disappointing that we have formulas in nearly all of these countries, China's a little bit more challenging for us all, um, where we have bargaining processes, we have democratic, clear unions who are responsible for seafarers welfare, we have good employers, um, and we have you know people that follow the rules. So we, we believe we have established good quality, good quality seafarers for the, for the market that we have. Now, the challenge is, if those governments, and none of us would challenge the right of a govern, government to protect its citizens, but you know, when you shut down borders, this hasn't just gone for seafarers, it's gone for our truck drivers and transport workers in lots of sense, you, the consequences are enormous. Um, and we've seen this. And it's, it's very interesting for us. I should have mentioned that the UN Secretary General has made two pleas out to the governments of the world to get more involved. He asked us um, through our, our global union representations in all sectors to do everything to keep the global supply chain going. Now, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's really easy to ask, but our industry's not regulated by one shipping company. And of course, we're, we really are a truly global, cosmopolitan, I would argue, equitable, fair industry. But when you can't get a decision made, and I think, you know, uh, the question was, was there in one of the other questions about the log jam, as we would describe it in Manila and India. First, we have to understand um, a little bit from the seafarers perspective. So 
that we have a crisis for the seafarers on board, but we also have seafarers ashore who haven't worked for, who, have, who were due to go to work three months ago, two months ago, one month ago, with no money to provide for their family. And in the Philippines, the seafarer provides for an extended family. Um, it's not just uh, like uh, in the global north sort of married couple and one child, there's a very big extended family. So we are impacting directly the economics of, of, of the country. Uh, the seafarers are some of the better earners. And so there's a real issue here about the stress and strain. So I suppose um, without abusing the position, we are making a call out to the, to the Philippines government and, and challenge in India is slightly different um, to, 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 to work out how we make sure we have daily flights out of uh, the Philippines and back to the Philippines from the global hubs, the aviation hubs, because we really need, um, you know, they, they work very hard to become the number one cruise supply country in the world. And I would argue that that's under pressure. We listen to conversations um, from the operators who frankly are as frustrated as my members and our unions that some seafarers, we just have to get off of their mental well-being. There's a question about well-being, which I want to pick up in its own right in a moment. But the issue of um, some seafarers that are exhausted and just have had enough, and it's safer to take them off, um, and taking them off is one option if immigration will allow you. Another is to, to allow them to stay in their cabin. There are some contractual complications about collective bargaining agreement coverage, vessel in a health and safety moment, you know, a storm, etc. But you really, you know, seafarers are a team. And if part of the team is exhausted, the other part of the team either have to take extra exposure, but also we're not just risking the seafarers uh, and the cargo of the ships. And I think this is a message to maybe the charterers out there that, um, you know, BIMCO and, and ICS, and I'll give Guy the opportunity to explain a bit more detail, have worked on a clause. But diverting ships is now going to become a reality if... AMSA, which is the Port State Control in Australia, and I'm seeing it literally on a daily basis. Bear in mind, we get correspondence from seafarers every day, all day, every night. Um, Port State Control inspectors are now under immense pressure. I'm here in Tilbury working on some cruise ships uh, about extensions of contracts. We're working with a cruise company to find a solution. But they're working, they're under pressure to detain vessels to be in compliance with the regulations. So We've chased it and chased and chased. Now we need to get planes in, in the sky. And, and, I, and I'll let Guy come in on the, the BIMCO, the technicalities of what I believe is a good clause to help us out of some of these challenges. Guy? Thanks, Steve. Yeah. It's going to be a team effort that you pointed out right now. We're never going to solve it. Not one group is going to solve this issue. It's going to be, and that includes the charters, as well as the ship owners are now doing everything possibly they can, ship managers. Everyone's trying to work together and we need everyone to step up to the plate. So I was really pleased at the end of last week that BIMCO uh, had a deviation clause approved and is out there. And I would really encourage uh, ship owners and charters to use that clause because it does allow for deviations uh, for the purpose of the crew change. It does allow the possibility of a sharing of the burden of that, which is really important. These things, you know, if you do have to divert away, they're not cheap and you don't want vessels off hire. Any time as well, so that's part of the toolbox now. It's getting, I think, Steve, you put the nail on the head. It's getting those commercial flights out of the major labour supply countries. That's what are going to be our focus as well, and at the same time, removing those administrative burdens. So we know where the issues are. It's now really shouting out loud and really trying to persuade governments to take this seriously to help us with this. Um, otherwise, you know, the, the, the supply chain is under threat. There's no doubt about it. And I think what I find so frustrating is actually relatively simple to fix if people put their mind to it. We put together, with the whole industry, put together these protocols, these 12-step protocols, which the IMO issued out the, the, the 6th or 7th of May, which gives, will give assurance to government, to ship owners, ship managers, crew will look after themselves, leaving home to get into the ship to try and minimise that risk. I, I noticed someone's put in the, in the chat box about increasing COVID positive cases on board ship. That again, we need to uh, persuade governments it, it's, it's, it needs to be taken seriously. We need to be able to treat people uh, that, that this happens to, um, this happens to as well. So we need 
governments to understand and to work with us on the solutions because um, this COVID-19 is going to be with us for months to come yet. And so we can't just put everything in abeyance whilst it, if it, you know, it works its way out because that's not going to happen anytime soon. So we've got to now work together, teamwork, to make sure we have a sustainable pro uh, process in place to allow crews to be changed and crews to be looked after as well. Allow, would you like to come in on the, the issue? Yeah, I like to. I actually do like to. <laughs> a, uh, I mean, from my own personal experience, I, I can tell you, I have, I have uh, managed to get the crew off the ship, but then they are stranded because the scheduled flight was cancelled, and we could not get another flight because flight just keeps cancelled. So we have about thirty crew stranded after leaving the ship. Uh, this is one, and uh, and and personally, in, a, in our company, we have at least three incidents where the charters, and, and these are big oil companies, uh, threatening to off-fire the ship because there was a little bit of a delay with regard to the crew arriving and depart uh, departing without uh, realizing uh, how much effort uh, nowadays it takes uh, for a crew to join from the moment they are uh, selected, they had to be quarantined, they had to be tested, and, and uh, like we in our internal protocol, we require double testing before somebody goes, starts traveling to join our ship. Uh, and all the governmental, um, um, uh, sorry, uh, restrictions, flights, so we know how, how much it takes. So we really like to see that the, the major uh, bodies that actually involve in chartering ships, involve in actually the uh, the product of the whole whole business. Uh, we bring the cargo from one port to another, and for them to give us this extra hand. So finally, we need to thank uh, Bimco and, and and all the work ICS has put in to bring out the clause. And hopefully now we have a reference point. Uh, to talk to the charters uh, on, on this this issue. So this is this is something that I think is a good development, but I think we still need to see it is being followed or it is being accepted uh, by the by the charters. Uh, another issue I think is very plain and simple for all of us to see: not a single port in the world is closed since the crisis. Everybody wants the port open, but everybody do not wish to see those people who bring the ships to the port. They don't want them to go ashore. They don't want to have their medical uh, attendance ca carried out. And, uh, uh, and uh, I, I said a few times to my colleagues in the industry, uh, my office in Singapore, we, out from my window, I can see 100 ships in the anchorage. And none of these guys are allowed to come home. Sorry, even get off, forget going home. And uh, the regulatory body in Singapore is, is just, just nearby and they can see as well. When you see food on your table, uh, your, your petrol on the car and, and everyday thing that you see on the supermarket and you don't sympathize with the people who are actually bringing those to us, it's really going back to the same old phrase, uh, out of sight, out of mind or whatever we call it, I believe that this crisis has brought us to the same old questions that the seafarers are always working from the shadow and never getting the credit for for moving 90% of the world's cargo. So um, I, I hope this crisis and, and those of us who are listening today will do from wherever we are to bring this thing, bring the seafarers in the front. We should be at the back. We should not be in the front. It should be the seafarers who are in the front. So, so I, I hope that uh, uh, the end users will see this and help us and bring enough pressure to the governments and the airlines to do something. Thank you. Okay, Pala, I think um, there's, a, there's a number of questions around the detention issue and that is a very sensitive issue. I think all, all, all three of us from our different perspectives worked collaboratively to transfer, to first to give ourselves the framework, Guy identified uh, the protocol that's put in place. Then our unions, our employers, our counterparts nationally went into, into rooms and you heard Bilal talk about the task force in Singapore and I would put on record, Singapore has dramatically improved. Hong Kong is improving. 
career has been reasonable all the way through. But again, we're talking about a global workplace, a ship with a global workforce, India, Ukraine, Philippines. If we can't bridge the connection, we can't solve the problem. We know, and uh, ITF has a lot of um, relationships. We also represent aviation workers um, with the airlines who are ready to move. And we're, we're, on the, we're, we're at the stage where we believe this is now becoming a humanitarian issue. And that would take me, hopefully, to the well-being questions that are in the, in the document. Um, detention is a method to get policy to change at government level. I'll stop there. <laughs> it's a political issue for some of the flag states, how they've done it. But the recognition is actually that they're really moving, and we do appreciate that. But well-being, the ITF, I'm sitting in a seafarer's centre in Tilbury that doesn't have any seafarers in because of the, you know, we've had to fight with the reality. The ITF, first six weeks of COVID, put a million pounds into welfare agencies to sustain them. So our colleagues from Stella Maris, Mission to Seafarer, all do critical work to join up seafarers um, and families and seafarer centres. So there's lots of secondary challenges. And uh, we've been talking with employers about well-being courses for seafarers because pressure on cost, small crew, um, multicultural environment. You know, so that for us, well-being is a very critical issue. And I think for me, when we talk about what does a modern future seafarer need, and if we, you know, none of us would pass the ITF criteria for youth, so none of us are under 35. But the reality for, for, for the industry is we have to be attractive to young people and we have to look at what skills we need. And we're gonna to have to look at the work-life balance and the career opportunities. So I'd kind of like to move the conversation a little bit into Guy and Balau, what skills do you need? I know this will bring in the technology question and you know, if, if we're water propelled or ammonia propelled, how would we tackle that? So I think I'll go to Guy first and then there'll be Balau to come back on that pretty big question. Thanks, and, and I think um, it is a, it's a, a complex issue. I think we need to make the industry more attractive. We also need to make sure we have a diverse workforce. You know, that's, it's not just down to countries, it's also down to gender and all these other things. I mean, I, I, my daughter's also a seafarer um, and uh, she's one of only think five, uh, five or six percent of seafarers around the world are, are female. So. If we're going to move into the future, we've also got to make sure we attract we attract everybody into the industry and not just focus on a particular narrow band uh, as well. I think you know I think instead of the start of this, that seafaring is going to change over the next ten years. Um, we're looking at the ICS along with others are looking to launch a research and development fund and able to really tar targeting the, the, the sea changing technology that's going to be required, uh, the fuels and technology, and if it you know say ammonia or hydrogen or some of these other zero carbon fuels, they're going to require an immense amount of training uh, to make sure they can be carried safely and they can be used safely. And that's going to require increased training of seafarers. I think the, the, there is automation. I, don't, I, I agree with you, Steve. I think the, the idea of an autonomous vessel completing is some way off, uh, if at all, and that seafarers are going to be the backbone. But what sort of skills are seafarers going to need to the future? I think we're going to need sort of a systems engineering approach. It's going to be uh, a much more focus on that sort of side of the business, I think, for the seafarer of the future. And that then begs the question is, how do you make career attractive in terms of work-life balance and looking after their welfare going, going forward? I mean, this crisis has shown that to sharp relief is, you know, you talk about a closed centre you are at the moment, and we know that happened right the way around the world. And these seafarer centres are vital in terms of giving that people an opportunity to get off the ship to sort of you know, uh, contact home to, to get some, you know, necessary downside. So we need to focus on all those aspects going forward. And I know ship owners are put on the extra mile to sort of increase satellite broadband bandwidth to increase more internet access for improvements. It's never going to be enough. And as we move out of this, it's, it's looking after that whole package of what's going to make the seafaring career attractive, but also in terms of uh, that, that welfare aspect as, as well. Uh, it's, you know, it's now what, 2020, so in 10 years plus, we're going to be operating new and different ships, and we need to start preparing that now, preparing the workforce of the future. Uh, along with other, we're, we're looking at changes to the STCW, 
So that's a regulatory change we need to be, and that's gonna that was meant to kick off actually this year, but that may be delayed now because of the crisis. But we'll need to tackle this whole issue on a, a wide variety of fronts. And you said something that proves on about teamwork. The only way we're going to do this now, I think, is to us all working together to manage that change into the new to the new future. Um, if we're going to do it successfully, I think history tells us by working together we can achieve. If we work independently, it's it's going to it's going to fail. Yeah, <clears throat> I think uh, I just like to add what uh, I, I had I had a little bit on my note about STCW. Uh, uh, relatively outdated now because the ships that is running nowadays are really already what you can call a, a smart ship. Uh, we uh, it mostly ends up uh, the operators or the employers doing the extra training that is needed to manage those ships. So technology is not waiting for the STCW to make the changes. It is moving ahead. Ship owners are accepting uh, technology that is um, uh, driving the ship in a more automated way. Uh, so uh, sh ships are changing and, and we have to change, uh, change the way we uh, recruit the future uh, seafarers and how do, we, how do we train them? And one of the thing that uh, we, we all know when we talk about uh, automated uh, self-driven uh, bus, cars, trains, and we are not talking about automated ships, but we are talking about a lot of remote data access, which is already exist. Uh, we have some in our company where we do have access to the ship's data, uh, almost everything, which means once you have the data, you can actually take over part of the, part of the work that is uh, supposedly done on board. So in, in my view, in probably in five years time, uh, we are going to have crew, not just on board, but some of the crew actually working from office. So how do we have that technology built into the crew who during their time when they are on leave and then part of the time they will be in office doing part of the job that they were supposed to do on the ship. So those kind of changes, I believe, that will happen sooner rather than later. I mean, uh, I, I just put an analogy in, in, in Singapore, we have certain train lines, which is still uses drivers. There are others completely driverless, and we know those are not running actually by itself. The drivers are in a control room. So if we talk of future ships, that part of the engineering or part of the technological solutions that can no longer be done on board because of the complexities of automation and, and computerization, the solution is actually to be done from shore. So we are looking at future where, what type of people we bring into the sea, what kind of competency, qualification, pre-qualification needed for them to become a smart officer on a smart ship. So things will, things will be changing, and I believe that they, they are changing uh, all the time. This means that the amount of funds or amount of money that is needed for future crew training is going to be exponential. Uh, I look back 30, 40 years ago, the amount of funds that ship owners needed to spend for crew training is probably nothing compared to what we do today. So industry is becoming complex, ships are becoming complex, and we need to keep an eye on this. And talking, just taking over the uh, subject of uh, environmental uh, safeguarding that the, everybody's looking at ships polluting the world, uh, which uh, some of us may debate because uh, compared to the amount of cargo we carry, probably per ton or per kilogram, pollution is not bad, but it is quite quite a large. And the way the industry the regulators IMO is moving towards um, uh, reducing the pollution, this is something that is going to happen uh, again sooner than later. Uh, LNG fuel, I think is something that probably we'll see more often in the future. And as, as Guy mentioned, hydrogen and others. But I still believe that shipping will remain the backbone of the global supply chain and there is no way we can 
not focus on the people who will run the industry, basically the seafarers. So um, uh, our view on recruitment should be radicalized within the next few years in order to have someone 10 years from today who will become a captain is recruited today with sufficient knowledge of what he is going to provide, what is going to be expected of. So uh, the basic requirement of seafarers from the cadet level will have to change. So this is something, these challenges, I think as a recruitment, as, an, as a shipping company, we are, uh, we, are, we are starting to address. Thanks, Palau. I think, think just um, from the ITS perspective, these are, these are really big questions. And I, you know, I echo the comments of both Bilal and Guy that we need to work together, but they're not uncontroversial in certain senses. Many of our unions, and this is kind of take me into the conversation, um, many of our unions are ratings unions and our officers unions. And the challenge of uh, a ship to shore education for the industry, I think, you know, there's many different reasons why different sea nationalities have become the backbone of the industry. Um, and there's many, um, what we would describe as traditional nations, seafarers, who have not always been best pleased about those transitions. But the question is more about, um, as we see the world changing, and uh, I, I believe that we and the industry need to work much harder together and, uh, and we would support Guy's position about establishing a fund to, to, to deal with what do we need to transition the shipping um, uh, in response of the environment. But I also think we need to have that conversation about what does the global supply chain look like? We speak to our, um, our seafarers unions and our other unions that we, so we have seafarers unions, dockers unions, trucking unions. Well, whether we like Amazon or not at the moment, um, because they're not particularly friendly to unions, the reality is some of those big retail point-to-point -point delivery organizations are dominating our, our freight marketing. So there's a challenge for us. If we want to attract the right people with the right skills, we need to look at where they fit. And, um, you, know, I, you know, we talk regularly with a lot of the big um, container companies and, and we see them moving inland, if that's the right way to describe it. We see them becoming involved in port operation and logistics. And I think there's a big challenge for us, not just on how do we propel ships, but how do we, how do we recognize that, you know, the global supply chain, I think will change post COVID. I think over-reliance on certain countries will come under the, under the spectrum, government, government um, procurement as we've seen over kind of some of the crises nationally for personal protection equipment. And we've talked to many multinationals that are more than just shipping companies, but now stockpiling personal protection equipment. There's going to be, there's going to be some changes coming as a result of the COVID-19. Um, and there's still a few questions that we have that seem to answer, but in reality, we're not encouraging detention, but we are also recognizing in the ITF where we have partnership with the employers, We'll work with the companies and the port authorities to manage the situation. But if you are leaving Australia and you're struggling, you know, there are ports in, in Asia um, and that concept about the new BIMCO clause does help. Hopefully the charters share the burden, but in the bigger picture, there's a question for us about how do we look at our industry? If we look at a, at a uh, hiring labor methodology on a fixed term contract, which is kind of how seafarers are employed, that doesn't incentivize a career loyalty and those core issues. And as we see consumers intelligence about whether it was climately friendly delivered, whether there was child labor, whether the international labor standards were recognized, there's some challenges for us about transparency. Um, you know, when I joined the ITF 27 years ago, a bit more difficult to say there are good employers and the good employers are part of this panel and many in the audience. And that's the reality of change. But if we're going to shape our industry, which I'm incredibly proud to be part of, then we need to have a conversation about where do we fit and how do we get those people? Well, just keeping an eye on the time, Guy, would you like to think there's probably one round left in it for us on this issue? I think, uh, what, we can be, yeah, I think what we can be proud of as, a, as an industry 
is that I think we are the only global industry which has a minimum sort of standard for their workforce with the Maritime Labour Convention. I'm incredibly proud that we, we, we've got that. And we get a lot of criticism. And you know, but actually, the vast majority of ship owners are, are, are good employers and they look after their crews. Um, and they really want to have their seafarers to have, 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 have long and, and careers at World Sea because otherwise it's a waste of money training people if as soon as they get their certificates they, they, they move. But also increasingly to make, I think we, we say to young people, it's a career in our industry, not necessarily a career at sea, because I think there's a natural point where a lot of seafarers do come ashore and feel like, well, to look at um, Bilal, you know, captain, you know, ashore. So he's, and I, I'm the same, I'm a master mariner, came ashore. Sort of a, a long career in, in, in sort of still in the maritime industry, but ashore. But so I, I think we we've got some things that we can be really proud of. But we, what we mustn't do is keep looking back. We need to look forward. And actually, to me, one of the uh, real positives of this, and we've mentioned already, has been the cooperation we've had. I don't think I've we, we, not just with uh, social partners and uh, sort of uh, employers, but also with the regulators as well. I think I can't tell you how many um, calls I have each week with the IMO, with the International Labour Organization, with the World Health Organization. And we've also been with a lot of the welfare organizations as well. And to me, moving out of this is how do we take all those really good cooperation that, that thing and use it to our advantage to plan for the future and to look at the future workforce that this industry is going to have. Because it will have, to, you know, there's a question there about automation will that discourage people. I think, no, I think we can make this a really exciting future. Um, you know, you go on the bridge, I'm a deck officer, so I would be a bit biased. You go on the bridge of a, of a modern ship and just see it bristling with technology. Now, if that doesn't excite a young person as to, you know, and, and the ship operations as well, I don't know what, what, what can, but we need to plan that now and, and take what we've just experienced over the last few months and, and, and making sure that we help plan the future as a result. Hello. Yeah, I, th I think I think I, I do agree that technological changes that is happening on the ship has actually allowed us to go out, attract younger uh, students to join the sea, and we have done some videos and and some social media uh, programs for the younger uh, um, students to be attracted to sea, and and they are uh, coming on. And we don't have to tell them you have to stay at sea for 20, 30, 40 years. We just have to stay 10 years. That's good enough. And you can get back. And, and when we spoke up, when we talk about uh, uh, ships are changing, which means you don't have to be on board five years from today to actually run a ship because you could be a complementary crew on, on in office in order to run the operation of the ship. No? So I think, I think that is something that we can not only we we're not talking about selling it, we are talking about bringing the information to the younger generation. And post-COVID, and again, we know the employment situations around the world that has suffered so badly, and everybody's saying it's never going back to the, the pre-COVID level employment. And here is, again, could be another option for all of us to attract younger boys to join, join, join C, because this is one place where there is a, a continuous shortage of of uh, seafarers that that is uh, that is there. So we could we could use you you could use this shortfall as an incentive to going to schools, and not just on developing countries where they are providing the majority of the seafarers, but I believe in the developed nations as well because this is the time. Is it better not to jo to join a ship than to be unemployed or then to be looking for job and doing nothing? So again. These will require coordination among all of us here and, and schools and colleges and, 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 the, and the education ministries around the world, how we can attract young people. So just, just, just to supplement that, I think the ITF has a very uh, strong position on young people and the International Labour Organization uh, figures together with the World Bank um, figures and the IMF figures about the consequences to our economies is kind of petrifying from where I'm sitting defending good union jobs and I think the, the challenge and I think you can probably hear quite clearly from the three of us that we don't 
completely agree on everything. Maybe not be so obvious that we disagree on some things, but the reality is this gives us a unique opportunity to redefine um, what is the future seafarer and what skills they need and how do we how do we balance um, you know the, the the attractiveness of an industry and I think you know the other thing that we should mention and I should of course mention women as well in the fact that it's it's critical and we have a project to get more women at sea um, but I think it's also a recognition that young people are internationalists they they relish being part of a global um, society and I think COVID is, will do its best to shut borders and close our minds to uh, maybe conspiracy theories this and that but for me it's more about how do we how do we make sure we introduce global standards that you know recognizing that all, all elements of globalization are good but it does help developing countries develop and it does create employment and job opportunities I, I hope governments will recognize post COVID that there's a, there's a need for shipping and therefore there's space for everybody in the shipping, irrespective of which your, the size or the strength of your economy. So I think for me, really critical that we keep this continuity and cooperation going. And I think it's really critical that the noise we make, um, in the world's media, um, about the importance of shipping is carried out of the COVID period um, and gives us an opportunity to be seen as second line responders. There's a lot of questions about why governments don't see seafarers as key workers. You know, where we bash the door down, they have, but they don't seem to have the internal decision-making mechanism to remove the obstacles. Um, and that's, you know, that, that can't be allowed to happen. Um, and we need to get seafarers on and off ships and we need governments to do more. I think, is there anybody would like to have some closing comments? I think Nicholas was going to uh, come and close uh, us down. Yeah, may, may I? Just yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have just done mine. <laughs> now, uh, I think this crisis has put me into a lot of passionate um, uh, verbal outburst and in many, 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 uh, many occasions. But I, I, I do believe that one of the reasons that I was interested in uh, Capital Links or webinar to attend is I was thinking that probably uh, we are bringing the message to a part of the world where uh, somehow we, from where we are, feel that um, um, they're probably not as involved, but now uh, I, I see the, the number of participants and the interest people are taking. I know there are a lot of questions that I can see. Probably we will take time to reply those. I don't know whether that is available later. Some answers probably will not be live. Uh, I think I have enjoyed what, what we are able to speak today, but what we need to carry from here is basically just small message from us is that we need to work to, with the government to get some flights moving even for a short period of time to get this crew moving because when we spoke in march we gave a figure of 200,000 seafarer that needs to be changed and we all the trying and, and all the struggle that various people have done with charter flights uh, i don't believe we have done more than 40 50,000 and every month we are adding 100,000 crew to be changed. So now if you think of three months, we have actually gone additional 300. And if you take 200, 500, we are again back to not square one, we are actually worse than that. So unless we clear this log jam, we really uh, can expect some, some serious situation with global sup supply chain and nobody wants to see that. And I do believe personally that the governments that are influential in the world, and we spoke about G20, G7, and the major governments, how they can influence the policy that is globally accepted. It is, we know that the developing nations has their limitations with regard to what they can and cannot do. They cannot open the door for, the Filipino government cannot open the door for their seafarers to arrive in Europe without visa. So this requires intervention 
and this requires temporary solutions. We don't need this to be permanent. So if we can bring something from this, uh, this, this webinar, that how do we move this extra uh, effort that is needed for the government to wake up? And once again, I hope that the, the British government's initiative with regard to the, the meeting they are going to arrange uh, brings this message uh, into that and, and we have something done, uh, not, not later, but as soon as possible. And uh, thanks, Nicholas, Steve, Guy. <laughs> and all Guy? I'll be, I'll be very, very brief, Nicholas. So thank you to Captain Nick, thank you, Nicholas, and Baroness, to have a really good debate today. I think what is clear that seafarers are absolutely essential. Um, we're so grateful for the work they do, and I think the world should be grateful for the work they do. Um, and uh, we're, we're asking ships around the world on the 8th of July to sound the horns again at midday local time to call out to the politicians that do something about this. So thank you all very much indeed. So up to you, Nicholas. Well, from my end, uh, thank you to all three of you. It's been a very interesting discussion, very insightful, and uh, this is one of the hottest topics in the industry right now. And we have the key people. Thanks, Nicholas. I think just 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 to say thanks for the opportunity. I I I can't commend the panel fellow panelists on how hard we've all been working to get those decisions made, and it's just sometimes incredibly frustrating that we are unified in an industry, not the same in all transport industries, um, but it's difficult to get governments to, to recognise the critical situation we're in. So I think ours is a please, 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 all of you that are listening, chase someone that you can influence about shipping and, and let's get those planes in the air and the seafarers on and off the ships. So thanks again. And right to your governments, every single one out there, right to your governments. Okay. Well, thank you again thank you. to everybody and just to remind uh, our um, participants that uh, there would be a replay available. So one of the good things about having an online webinar is we can have a longer shelf life and hopefully more people will come to, uh, to listen to this uh, insightful uh, discussion. Thank you very much. I think we can all now disconnect and again, tremendous thanks to, uh, to all three of you. Thank, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.